PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussain and Blake Woods. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast where we continue to make board studying fun and relaxed. I'm joined here by my co-host, Dr. Briggs. What's up? Hey, I'm having fun and I'm quite relaxed. <laughs> uh, this is part of that continuing series we have in collaboration with ASEP's Peer Review. They give us questions from their peer database and we give our voices to the community, to ASEP, to everyone. For every 15 to 20 minute episode, you gain high yield board knowledge. We like to say come for the stems, but stay for the content. You'll also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and at EM Board Bombs. So before we start, we want to give a quick shout out to Dr. Francis Lawson, who's a longtime listener since the beginning, and now they recently subscribed to Rapid Bombs. They asked us to do a question on hepatitis. We're going to do that on Rapid Bombs. You can link to the show notes that we have. It's a new podcast that we've started. We bill it as the first interactive question bank podcast ever created. We're dropping a new episode almost daily during the month. Each episode is only three to five minutes long. We're also doing coaching. So each rapid fire question has a coaching aspect that tells you various ways that the boards might test you on this. We're also utilizing spaced repetition, which is really cool because we know in bolus learning, you're not really learning that much. We like to call it drip learning, where you're getting small amounts of knowledge at a time. And we're also sending out multiple emails a week that are helping you retain the knowledge that you're learning through those daily podcasts. It's interactive as well. We've got an AMA section, not against medical advice, obviously, Dr. Briggs. (laughs) This is the ask me anything question where you get to post questions on the particular questions that we're giving you. As much as you prepare for questions on your own and you're, you know, reading through texts of the answer choices, there's nowhere really in the world we know of that'll say, this is how it's going to ask you this. And we're doing that. We're telling you not only this is what you have to know, but we're not just saying memorize these 20 million things. We say, okay, here are these 20 million things that you're gonna have to know for the boards, but really you don't have to know that many of them. And here's why some of them would come up more than others. Uh, There's really no one else doing that. In the world. In the world. In the world. And it's rapid <laughs> fire. There's no banter. There's nothing. We've really optimized it just for podcast yeah. format. And we've paired it online with the web-based form and the email aspect. So you have great memory retention. But mm-hmm. let's get into this topic. And one more time, shout out to Dr. Francis Lawson, now a subscriber to the new Rapid Bomb podcast. You can find it in the show notes. And we'd also like to give a thank you to Everyone else who subscribed to the new pod and is supporting us through that avenue. It's awesome. We really appreciated the support. It's been awesome. Here's this Pier 9 question. We've got a 60-year-old male with a history of lung cancer who presents with shortness of breath. He was having a heated debate with his son over the Ardennes counteroffensive and how the Allies' bad luck with <laughs> weather was the only culprit of the offensive. Again, only. His son felt that this was not a nuanced enough argument. And he felt that Ali should have been better prepared and utilized other forms of intelligence and not been so heavily dependent on aerial reconnaissance. Further, he countered the supply roads themselves deserved more debate and attention, as described in the book, quote, The Ardennes by Hugh M. Cole. Hmm. 
Nonetheless, after screaming at his son about being a millennial snob and not having more empathy, he developed rapid shortness of breath. Hmm. His son rushed into the ER where his vital signs showed blood pressure 75 over 60, heart rate 130, respiratory rate 20, O2 sats 98% on room air. On physical exam, he had jugular venous distension and clear lungs. Which finding on bedside echocardiography would you expect to see in this patient? Is it A, inspiratory inferior vena cava collapse, B, left ventricular dilation, C, regional wall motion abnormality, D, right atrial compression. Again, remember those vital signs, low blood pressure, tachycardic, respiratory rate 20, SATs are 98% on room air. The correct answer, Dr. Briggs, is what? Correct answer here is going to be D, right atrial compression. We're talking about cardiac tamponade. And see, the thing is, everyone knew we were talking about cardiac tamponade. Correct. As soon as we gave it. But then we gave those answer choices, and people were like, oh, wait, hold up. Hold up. (laughs) (laughs) It's like at first they're saying, yeah, we got this. And then it's the answer choices, and they're like, nah, I'm going to head out. So cardiac tamponade, also called tamponade, if you're from Spain, it may be acute or subacute. It's characterized by the accumulation of pericardial fluid under pressure. Under pressure, just like that song. Under pressure. (laughs) Cardiac filling is impeded by an external force. The normal pericardium can stretch to accommodate physiologic changes all the time in cardiac volume, right? However, after its reserve volume is exceeded, the pericardium greatly stiffens up. An important pathophysiologic feature is greatly enhanced in tamponade, and that's called ventricular interaction or interdependence. And this is basically the hemodynamics of how the left and right heart chambers interact and how they're directly influenced by each other to a much greater degree than normal when there is an influence of tamponade. This patient displays classic signs of cardiac tamponade. In fact, this patient has two out of the three signs of Beck's triad. You remember Beck's triad from medical school? And forgot it because you realize you'll never see that in real life. So, <laughs> in general, Beck's triad, let's remind ourselves, is hypotension with a narrowed pulse pressure, distended neck veins, and muffled heart sounds. I'm still waiting for the day when I'll hear muffled heart sounds. So, no joke, a med student once told me, I think I heard muffled heart sounds. And I was like, wait, are you serious? And I was like, how do you know? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> They were, hard, they were hard to listen to. <laughs> and then I went over to yeah. the patient, and it was a morbidly obese. They're on their iPhone. Morbidly obese male. Yeah. Morbidly obese male. Yeah, yeah, It happens. So this patient has two out of the three Bex tribe, which is hypotension and distended neck veins. Now, first, let's talk about what can precipitate tamponade. And remember, this podcast here, we could spend all day talking about the treatment, the management, and the pathophysiology of tamponade. It's truly fascinating. We're simply telling you what you need to know for the test. And really just the, the steps behind this, kind of what your pathophys questions are going to be on tamponade. First, let's talk about what can precipitate tamponade. So any rapid blood accumulation like in hemopericardium, most commonly this can be due to trauma. It can also be due to ventricular rupture, such as post-MI. Non-hemopericardium would be cancer, really 
most commonly lung cancer, breast cancer, prostate, and any hematologic malignancy. In this case, we presented a patient with lung cancer. HIV complications can also be there, autoimmune disorders, especially lupus, myxedema from hypothyroid, and post-radiation. Now, all these causes are pretty much very similar to constricted pericarditis and acute pericarditis, and that's because that's a trend here. The biggest issue here that you have to realize is that worldwide, one of the most common causes will be tuberculosis. And so if they're asking you what's the most common non-traumatic cause of pericardial fusions in the world, it actually is tuberculosis. Wow, what a pearl. I love it. I know. I love it. Also, don't forget, we didn't mention this here, but we will in the handout, ESRD patients. Yes, absolutely. You know, funny story about that, if you'll allow me the time. Do I have the floor? Um, Hold on, let me check. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, funny you mentioned that about ESRD patients. It was actually one of my first months moonlighting as a second year resident. And I remember I had distinctly had an ERCD patient come in. He was a very nice gentleman. And he said, you know, I feel weaker than normal. Uh, I just feel less energetic. And I check his, you know, labs and everything, do an x-ray and expecting him um, to have, you know, some type of electrolyte abnormality or anemia secondary to ESRD. And sure enough, his hemoglobin was, I think, like 6.8 or something. Like that. It was low. But I looked at his prior labs and he had had a hemoglobin around there previously. So it wasn't dramatically different. I told him, how long have you been feeling much weaker than normal? You know, it's such an abstract complaint. And he said, really, just this past week. And, you know, so that didn't make any sense. I didn't link up with the hemoglobins. And so, sure enough, I was going to admit him regardless. So I took an extra minute, swung by the room, and did an ultrasound. And because the heart looked a little bit larger on the x-ray, but not really anything crazy. And I saw a massive effusion. Mm. Mm. (laughs) And he was just sitting there talking on his phone and everything. So, of course, he didn't require an emergent therapy. But it was a good example of not anchoring on this uh, one thing when you think, okay, ESRD patients, they're particularly high risk for pericardial fusions. I've seen numerous articles on them. So in the back of your mind, when you're working in the emergency department, when you're thinking fluid overload, ESRD, or just fatigue, ESRD, I have a very low threshold, aka almost all the time, I will do a quick bedside ultrasound to look for uh, pericardial fusion. Huge. Another pearl dropped. Love it. Thank you. Why don't you go into the Bex triad stuff? and Yes, because um, Bex triad, um, as you already knocked the wind out of my sails, is so common, right? No. Mm-hmm. Bex triad is only present in a minority of cases of acute tamponade. Physical exam findings, such as sinus tachycardia, even in the absence of frank hypotension, may be the only thing that indicates significant hemodynamic compromise from cardiac tamponade and may serve as an indication for immediate pericardiosynthesis. Let's repeat that. In real life, a patient with tamponade can be considered unstable even if their blood pressure is normal, or air quotes, normal, right? So critical. Now, let's get into the whole Kussmaul sign. This is the whole absence of an inspiratory decline in jugular venous pressure. That's going to be seen a lot, right? Uh, No, that is not usually seen in cardiac tamponade. Oh, maybe chest x-ray, right? That's going to help you out a lot. Uh, No, not really. Fake news. It's not really not going to be that helpful, unfortunately. Cardiomegaly is not usually seen in acute cardiac tamponade since at least 200 mLs of pericardial fluid must accumulate before the cardiac silhouette enlarges. Hey, this is really, really, really important. I can't emphasize this enough. And that's why I said you took the just wind out of my sails because I was going to go off on this. But it's really that acute onset, especially where that chest x-ray just not going to be helpful. And those are those cases where those people need emergent pericardiosynthesis as well, or can need it. The EKG, electrical alterans. 
Ooh. We all like to say it. Ooh. Electrical ultrans. <laughs> if you want to sound really smart, you say, do you guys think you're seeing some electrical ultrans there? <laughs> it's not sensitive enough to rule out tamponade. It is specific, though. It is specific, but not commonly seen. What's more common? Low voltage EKG. Yes. Hey, can you, can you talk about this? I'm going to give you the floor, Dr. Briggs. Thank you. The gentleman from North Carolina yields the floor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> amplitudes of all QRS complexes in limb leads are less than five, or amplitudes of all QRS complexes in the precordial leads are less than 10. Oof. That's a low voltage DKG. And the reason for that is, is the low voltage DKG is due to all that fluid accumulating. Now, there's other causes of low voltage EKG, and pericardial tamponade, of course, is not the most common cause. You know, hypothyroidism, uh, really just body habitus, obesity, would probably be the most common. And there's other causes, electrolyte abnormalities, all that, but really the most scary one you don't want to miss is this, tamponade. Correct. Really the most important part of diagnosis is going to be, as we've hinted at earlier, is bedside echocardiography. And that can rapidly confirm this diagnosis, and it's used to guide you know, needle decompression if you have to do an emergent pericardiocentesis. The days are over when we're doing blind pericardiocentesis. How silly. Oof. You have an ultrasound that's ready to do it. And if you can do an ultrasound guided IV, I kid you not, you can do an emergent pericardiocentesis, yes. no problem. Yes, you can. The presence of pericardial fluid is obvious with a bedside ultrasound. If you know how to do an echo, you're going to not miss a pericardial fusion if you're just not paying attention. So additional ultrasound findings in cardiac tamponade include, and here were the answer choices, one, right atrial compression, right ventricular diastolic collapse, and a dilated inferior vena cava with a lack of inspiratory collapse. All this makes sense. We have external fluid pushing on the heart, compressing the right atrium and the right ventricle, and dilating the inferior vena cava. So patients with cancer, like lung cancer especially, they'll like the patient in this question, they're at increased risk for developing effusions in tamponade, and patients with hemodynamic compromise, of course, will need emergent pericardiocentesis. Hey, Altafat, why don't you get into why the other choices are wrong, and we'll wrap this up. Sure, sure. So, inspiratory collapse of the inferior vena cava noted on bedside ultrasound can be seen with hypotension and can be due to septic or hemorrhagic shock, as well as other conditions that decrease the central venous pressure. Patients with hypotension, however, typically do not present with jugular venous distension or muffled heart sounds. Question choice B was wrong because left ventricular dilation noted on bedside echo is suggested of decompensated heart failure. Although jugular venous distension is often seen in acute congestive heart failure, this patient's presentation is more consistent with cardiac tamponade. Ultrasound can also be useful in diagnosing and managing hypotensive patients with cardiogenic shock due to heart failure. So you can still use ultrasound for that, obviously. Answer choice C was wrong because a regional wall abnormality noted on bedside echo may be seen in a patient with acute MI. Myocardial ischemia affects the myocardial function, resulting in wall motion abnormalities that may precede ECG changes. We're seeing more of a trend of using this at bedside when patients presenting with chest pain and ECG abnormalities uh, prior to getting you know, even labs back. So quick summary here. Let's bring it all together. The presence of right atrial compression, right ventricular diastolic collapse, and a dilated inferior vena cava 
with a lack of inspiratory collapse on ultrasound suggest cardiac tamponade. Remember the other key pearls that we threw in there. Chest x-ray is not diagnostic. EKG, electrical alterans, is specific but is not sensitive, so don't rely on that. EKG low voltage is more helpful, and we talked about the key things to look for, the amplitudes and what not to look for. Echo is very easy to do. Just do the echo if you've got even a suspicion. If you think to yourself, I think this might be tamponade, just do the echo. <laughs> Patient, <laughs> really, just do it. It's like the LP. If you're really thinking about doing LP, you should probably be doing the LP. Patients with tamponade can be unstable with a normal blood pressure. That's really important. You need to stop just looking at the blood pressure to think that this patient, that's the factor that's going to tip you over. Look for mental status changes. Look for extreme tachycardia and changes in pulse ox. These tell you that you should do an emergent periocardiosynthesis. Even removing a few mLs can help the patient dramatically. You don't want to get to the point where it's too late. And by that, I mean the patient's coding and now you're doing the pericardiosynthesis, that is suboptimal. While you're trying to do compressions. While you're doing compressions. <laughs> so we brought it all together for you. I love the pearls on this so much that I'm going to be including these pearls on our EM Rapid Fire podcast and the emails that are going to be going out on that. Again, we really appreciate the support that we've gotten uh, for our new pod, EM Rapid Bombs. Still going to be dropping EM Board Bombs, but if you want to get daily pods, you want to get really quick learning, you want to get that spaced repetition, those emails, the interactive aspect of it, so check us out in the show notes we dropped the link to where you can find our new podcast and how you can subscribe to it appreciate the support see you next time